Thank you for joining today for a new episode of the podcast as part of the Voice from Every Quarter episodes. Today's guest will be Shonda. Um, Could you please introduce yourself? So my name is uh, Shonda Bernadine. I am a PhD electrical and computer engineering professor at the FAMU FSU College of Engineering. And I've been there for, well, since 2013. I actually graduated from Florida A&M University with my Bachelor of Science degree in electrical engineering. I went to University of Florida for my master's degree, um, also in electrical and computer engineering. And then I came back to FSU for my PhD in electrical engineering. So I've been um, pretty much, and I've done all that in Florida. So I'm a Florida girl. Um, and then I've, I've taught, I actually taught at Georgia Southern for about eight years before I came back here to, um, to teach. So my family's here. Um, so coming back here was just like coming home. Okay. Um, so do you wanna jump right into the questions? Yeah. Okay. okay, so how do you think the United States women's overall rights are compared with other countries? That's a good question. So um, <clears throat> I know you mentioned on here, I'm going to, do you want to read the whole question or, because mm. I, I actually had to research this a little bit <laughs> because I didn't know where we stood. And, and so I'm glad you put some information um, on there. And we obviously have a long way to go, especially the fact that we had that Me, that Me Too movement a couple of years ago. Um, I think we've made progress for sure, but um, you know, there's there's still there's a lot of the questions that you have on here kind of point to this unequal, you know, reality that we have in the United States, and so um, apparently we're not even in the top ten <laughs> in terms of women's rights, which is really to me it was like a little shocking to me. I'm like, I thought we would at least be be up there, but we're, we're not. And it's hard when you're in the United States because you don't even really see it until you take yourself out of the out of perspective of being here and kind of for your whole life and working here. Um, but once you put yourself into the eyes of another country like Iceland, like you mentioned, then um, then you can see, yeah, we don't really, we don't really cut it. Like we're, we need to do more. So. Yeah, I was like also kind of surprised because the US kind of like boasts about um, like, how well they're doing but like when you like look it up and stuff then like you see that they're not doing well compared with a lot of other countries so yeah that was also surprising to me yeah yeah um so what do you think about equal pay do you feel that um in your area of work women are underpaid and if they are what can be done um yeah yeah so we're definitely underpaid (laughs) we're overworked and underpaid (laughs) Um, and I think that's in all areas, but in STEM, you know, I think that um, we're still, as women, we're still underpaid. And, and my biggest thing, though, is in my career, especially being a professor, um, a lot of the females, you know, because we're, I guess, typically known as being more of a nurturing, the nurturing gender, um, we do a lot of service. We do, we're like heavy service weighted. Um, and so, you know, if there's any kind of advising that needs to be done or any mentoring or um, I remember there's one situation where my chairman specifically asked me to be on a, on a student's doctoral committee because the parents wanted a female professor and there are only a handful of us in the department. Um, and so I can definitely say that um, in terms of the amount of service type of activities, which involved like more of the student oriented students and activities, there's an unequal balance there. And <clears throat> also because of that, you know, I, I would never see a man, this is just my, my own perspective, where a male professor, you know, come in and like put on um, like peer, tut- peer tutoring programs or retention education programs, 
I do it because I know there's a need for it. I see a need for it and I want our students to be successful. But there is no way a male, a male professor would come in and do anything like that because it would take away from their, from their own research and their own, like their own personal um, goals, which I still have personal goals too. But I just think from my perspective, it's, it's um, we just have to, I think we need to, we need to reach out and we need to make sure that our students are taken care of. So, um, and so we don't get paid, we don't get paid for that. We don't get paid enough for that. And I think somewhere I read there are still like, um, when we get like 79 cents on a dollar, maybe a little bit more than that. But um, we, you know, I, I can tell you for a fact that my paycheck, if another male that was in my same position, he'd be making probably a lot more than I'm, than I'm making now. And so, and a lot of that is, I think, just um, awareness. So just using your voice and, and being, being able to negotiate, which sometimes a lot of women don't do. Um, so one of the things that I, I and even for myself, that I want to do is really prepare our female students who are going into the workplace and like we need more you know women empowerment workshops and we need to know how to negotiate you know that first salary we need to know when we get in a situation like what are these gender biases or implicit biases that are going to be in this in this area because we're going to we're sending our female students off into a world where they're just it's male dominated and so they're going to have they're definitely going to have to deal with some issues that you know if we don't teach them how to deal with it in a way that they don't run away from it, but they can stand firm and be confident in their, their, their response, and then I think we've done our job. So we're, we, we're not there yet, um, but hopefully, I think I see small steps in that direction. Um, so I would really like to see more, do more and see more. Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, do you think menstrual products should be free for everyone, such as in workplaces, schools, and all government buildings? Um, and if yes, how should the government pay for it? So I think that's a really good question because I hadn't even thought about it. <laughs> um, you know, just from my perspective, I've never even thought that that would be an issue. But then I remember, I actually heard a report and about there was some country in Africa, or some I think it was, it was a nonprofit whose goal was to go and provide feminine products for um, this, you know, this this group in Africa because they didn't have it. It's like they didn't have the like if their menstrual period started, their menstrual if their period started, they just would not go to school. And because they don't have, they didn't have the resources to, to take care of themselves. So, I mean, just hearing that kind of makes you wonder and makes you think, well, yeah, in America, actually, we're, I, number one, I think it should be, yes, I think it should be provided. I think it should be in public spaces. Um, and, and number two, it kind of makes us more aware that, that there are people in third world countries who don't have access to it, to these kind of products. Um, and I think that's something that, I mean, we, we should not be victimized in a way for just because it's our I mean that's a God gave us that that what is it that key, that characteristic that trait so um that's not something that we willingly want to have I don't think so we should be that should be something that we should we shouldn't have to worry about getting access to the things that we need yeah and kind of going off of that do you think that there is a period poverty in the United States so that's, I want you to explain to me what you think period of poverty is. <laughs> um, I'm gonna look that up. Well, I've never heard of that before. So yeah, just kind of like um, a lack of access to like period products and like also lack of like education about um, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's my personal definition. Okay, so, um, and so this would be, so I mean, I guess if you look at aspects of our, nation like inner inner cities um and then even 
more recently, I've had some exposure or experience awareness of students that are in foster care who actually age out of the foster care system. And, and once they age out, it's like they have, they now are, they have to take care of themselves, you know, and there's like no one, they can't really depend on anyone else. Um, and they're still teenagers, still young. So I, I think from that perspective, I think, yeah, there still is um, that period of poverty. There's that lack of, of access to resources that's, that young people still need. Um, this, we need to do a better job of providing resources for our young people and making sure that they have what they need to be successful, especially the ones who are minorities. Um, and then, um, and now I, it's just, I, I kind of all, and I'm rambling, I know, but <laughs> with this pandemic, we have, there's like this mental health ish crisis that's going on. There's, you know, people are just, they're going, they're, you know, punching flight attendants on planes now. They're, they're more aggressive from being, I guess, locked up for, not really locked up, but I mean, not having to go out, being isolated for two years, that there's just, there's just a problem in this, in this country. Um, and so we need to do a better job of providing for our people. Otherwise, we're going, we're going, we're headed in the wrong direction or a bad direction, I should say. Yeah, for sure. And do you think women should have free access to non-prescription birth control? Um, why or why not? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, so free access to non-prescription birth control. So I've read this and in some ways I want to say no, not free access. There should be some subsidy, I think, um, or some like copay or something if it's non-prescription. Um, and I say that only because I, I think that if people, when people hear the word free, you're going to have people that are going to take advantage of that. And so there are going to be some that, oh, well, you know, I can go and I can, I can do anything I want to do because I know that ultimately I'm going to be able to get birth control and, 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 and if I wanted to, you know, terminate anything, I, I have, you know, I have that right, so to speak. So I, I think in some ways it kind of releases the boundaries and, and it kind of help, makes women, I don't know, just seem, uh, I don't know what the words are, but it kind of gives them a free pass to maybe do things that they shouldn't necessarily do. Not to say that all women are going to do that, but um, I just think there needs to be a little bit more boundary. So my personal opinion is I don't think it should be, I don't think it should be free. I think there should be some price that you pay for it, just so you know, is this really what I want to do? Or, you know, so you're just more aware of what you're doing and the decisions that you're making. Yeah. And what do you think about the U.S. policy for new mothers compared with other countries, such as Canada and Western European countries? Should women get at least three months of paid maternal leave, and what are the pros and cons of this policy? Good question. Yeah, I personally think that, yeah, women should definitely, <laughs> we should get our three months off, we should get paid for it. I mean, that's a hard process, childbirth and, and raising a child. Um, and we shouldn't have to worry, I don't think, about, well, am I going to have a job when I get back, or you know, we, I, I don't think we should be vil, victimized or villainized for, for birthing a child and bringing a child into this world. And I think the same thing also is true for the man, for the father. Um, I think that he should also feel like he can take time off and help take care of, raise the child, at least especially for the first six weeks. You know, that's, that's when a woman is, that's when her, how long it takes for her body to at least heal a little bit. Um, so I don't think that, I think for women, three months, I think is great for a man, I think at least six weeks and still with, with pay. Um, but let's see, in comparison to other countries, um, 
I'm guessing that we we don't do that. We're not we're not uh, we're not there yet. For me personally, in my profession, I think I'm a little lucky because I think it's very flexible. Um, and so, being a professor, you know, you can you can have a schedule where you can like I for my daughter, for example, she was born in November, so I worked up until the week before she was born, and then after she was born, um, my, my one of my colleagues was able to step in and take over my my class for the remainder of the semester, which was only like two more weeks. And so just having that flex, and then I was just back in back in the back in the classroom that next semester. So I had those three weeks, those four weeks off. Um, and so and so that put that gave me that full six weeks that I needed. Um, but it's it's really flexible my job. And then you know just having a, a supervisor or a chairman who kind of understands your perspective and says, okay, well I know you just had a baby, so don't push yourself or you need to take the time off and you can do that. And then another cool thing about Zoom right now and this whole virtual environment, I think that that's going to be really helpful, especially for women who can't necessarily get out of the house, but who still um, still want to be engaged in, in the job. Um, so I think for certain professions, it, there's, there's, it's easier than for other professions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, an Icelandic lawmaker in full view of her fellow lawmakers and television cameras delivered her remarks with her six-week-old daughter nursing quietly and no one cared. This is not surprising in Iceland, which has long had a liberal view of breastfeeding in public, but what do you think would happen if this had happened in the U.S., especially in the South, and do you approve of her action? Good question. Yeah, I think there would probably be outcry. <laughs> if this happened in the U.S., especially in the South, where there's this whole, we're like the Bible belt, and, you know, we're conservatives, and we, you know, oh, no, you can't, that's taboo, you can't do anything like that. Um, they're definitely going to cry. I personally, as long as it's done in a respectful way, I mean, um, babies have to eat and sometimes it's not always the most opportune time. So I think that, um, you know, if, if we had a lawmaker and she were nursing and it was, you know, I wouldn't want to see her, you know, her breast hanging out or anything. I wouldn't like it. There would be, should be something covered, but I don't, I don't see a problem with it at all. And I would totally approve of it. In fact, one of the things I'm actually part of Society of Women Engineers, and they have a national conference um, every year, and it's in like, different places every year. And I had a friend who just had a baby; she had a son, and, and we always meet up at the sweet conference. She was in like, I think at the time she was in Phoenix, and I was here in Florida, so we were going to meet up. And where was the conference at? I can't even remember. It was probably like somewhere in the Midwest, at least St. Louis or Kansas City, one of those places. But she, the baby was like three weeks old and she had the stroller, you know, in hand and she was in the, I was giving a presentation and she was sitting in the back and she was nursing her, nursing her son and it, there, no one thought it was, that anything was wrong with it, you know, and I think that's one of the benefits of being a part of a, a women's society, like it's just natural, we know we're in support of each other, we know the kind of things that, that need to be done and we, we get them done, you know, so we support, we're very supportive, so I, I really appreciated that and you know, I definitely see that as, as empowering and inspiring and encouraging. So I don't see a problem with it at all. But yeah, in the in the South, especially, it'd be a problem here. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what do you think of the new Supreme Court nominee, Kitaji Brown-Jackson? Um, how significant is this nomination? And what do you think the impact of this nominee will be to the Supreme Court? And what do you think would happen next? Good question. Yeah, that, I think this is a, I think it was a, an awesome selection or, or, or nominee. Um, definitely, it gives more representation. So when we talk about more representation for women, more representation for minorities, um, this is, this is like, 
what this is what we need if we want to progress and move forward as a society we need lawmakers who look more like us and so I think that um, I think this is definitely a positive thing and so I'm in full support of her um, I think part of the impact is going to be I mean it's like the door has been opened now so we have Sonia Sotomayor we have uh, Katanji Brown Jackson as soon as she gets confirmed we have um, I can't remember the other the other one there's another one that that Trump nominated but even her she seems like her, the, some of the decisions she's making are in support of women as well. Um, so I think what's next is probably going to be a female president, hopefully. Um, now we have a female vice president, but it's just opening the doors and it's, it's showing that women are just as capable as men, if not more capable, really. And we should tr be treated as such. We should, there's equal, equal rights, equal, you know, pay, equal, equal across the board. Um, and so I think this representation is, is, is huge. Um, could you talk about the obstacles women have to face in STEM? And do you think the glass ceiling is thicker for women in STEM and why? Yeah, so question is uh, yes for that, la that latter question. Um, the glass ceiling I think is thicker. Part of it I think I already mentioned, as a woman professor, we're like, you know, we're considered the nurturer, even, even if that's not even really our personality. We just automatically, the men automatically say, oh, well, you know, you can handle the advising and you can handle the mentoring, you can handle the, all the things that the men don't want to do. They just basically give it to the women. And it, what it does, is it takes away, it uses up time. Everything you do, it, it, there's a time aspect to it. And so that means if you're doing more advising, you're doing, we're doing more uh, mentoring, we're doing more educational and outreach type things, that means less time for research and less time for writing proposals and getting grants and going in and, um, and meeting like program directors. And so that could, the sacrifice is that, you know, or the, the consequence is that we're not gonna have as much um, check marks, I guess, as the men, because we, we've, and I guess that some, in some ways we can always say no. Um, so there are, you know, women that are like, okay, I'm gonna put boundaries around my time. And, and ultimately that's what we have to do. We just have to say, hey, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna say no. And I even, we did a, we did a workshop, not a workshop, but it was an end of the year banquet. And so one of the, the theme was finding our voices. And so I had had women professionals come and talk about finding their voice and ways to say no, because as women, sometimes it's hard for us to say no. And so, but I think in STEM, and really, if we're going to compete in these certain professions, we have to learn that. It's been hard for me to say no, <laughs> just because for me, I, I'm double minority, right? So I'm, I'm female and I'm also Black, African-American. And so I just see such a need within our department, within our profession for more females, more Black females, more Black people, period. Because if you even look at the technology that's being generated or created or developed, there's bias in that. There's bias towards women, there's bias towards minorities. And so the only way we're gonna combat that is if we're sitting at the table too, we have, if our voices are heard as well. And the only way our voices can be heard is if we actually go through the program, actually get a degree, get an education, get out there and say, hey, I'm here and listen to me. I have something important to say. Um, and so I'm, I know that we have to provide these programs. That's why I'm passionate about it, providing programs for students to be successful. Um, so whether it's through SWE, we're gonna do um, an end of, the, end of the year awards banquet, women in leadership banquet, I want to get into SWIN next, so K through 12, female student, female um, students, and kind of build that pipeline from there. We just have to do it. I mean, I, in my eyes, it's like it just has to be done. Otherwise, we're never going to progress. We're never going to get to where we need to get to. And I'm tired of being the only woman here. <laughs> I need more people here to, to, to help to help me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because it kind of seems like I know, like at school, like a lot of people have been talking about how 
they feel like the emotional burden is placed on like only like marginalized communities and like people of color to like make these changes because it's like and it's kind of like it can get exhausting so mm -hmm. but like it's something that like has to be done so yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. so you and your sisters are very successful like professors authors and lawyers um so what do you think are the main factors that contributed to your success i think um for us it's definitely family um, parental support, I think, is huge. So my parents, my dad is a mathematician. He has a PhD in mathematics. My mom has a master's in computer science. Um, and so we were just like, we, we couldn't tell them we didn't want to go to college. That, well, that, was, that was unheard of in our household. <laughs> it's like, you're going to go to college, you know, and you're going to get a degree. We didn't have to get be a PhD like my dad, but we had to go to college. Um, and so I think that they, my parents just kind of set that standard and created that environment for us to be successful. Um, and then also there's, they created balance too. So it's not just academics, but um, there's also a spiritual kind of, you know, balance that you need. Um, and then that, that like talk about nurturing. I mean, you need that too. You need that nurturing type of environment to really thrive and to be successful. So, um, and then I look at my parents as like my best friends and my mentors. I know that they want the best for me. So um, for me, it was just kind of a natural to, I was probably the good, the good child. <laughs> Out of the three of us, I was the one who's probably the one who's just kind of, you know, uh, focused and I'm going to do, I'm going to stay on the, on the straight and narrow, straight path and just kind of do what I'm supposed to do. Um, the lawyer, the, my younger sister, the one you're probably going to talk to next, she was the one who was like the rebel. You know, I call her the independent rebel because she just was doing her own thing and she always, she had her voice, you know, and, and but we're, she's doing great things and I'm really proud of both my sisters. Um, my older sister is like the social butterfly, so she's very uh, social. I'm the quiet one, um, but I think that all stems from just you know my parents allowing us to, to thrive and be who we are, but still setting that structure and setting those boundaries there, so we don't we can still stay on the path. Um, and then providing being role models, you know. So I, I definitely think home environment is really important, which unfortunately we don't have a lot of, I mean, the family unit, in all honesty, is kind of breaking down. If you look at how many people are divorced in this country, if you look at even the Black communities or the marginalized communities, where are the Black fathers? They're nowhere to be found, you know? Um, so the role models have to be there, and that's how, that's what, that's what kids are going to see and look to, um, and so if we don't provide that structure for them, if we don't provide that environment, then we can't expect them to be, to be successful, really. Yeah, and during the pandemic, when schools and childcare facilities shut down, many women quit their jobs to take, to take care of the family, and it seems that disproportionate housework has fallen on the shoulders of women, and what do you think could be done to change this trend? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, if you think about it, it, it kind of reverted back to like the 1950s, when you see like the I Love Lucy shows and all this old black and white TV, Leave it to Beaver. Um, when the women were expected to just be, you know, take care of the home and be, uh, just, you know, kind of be the beck and call it, be the beck and call it to their husband and their kids. Um, and they didn't really have a voice. So this pandemic has kind of brought that out again, but at the same time, I look at it and it's like, well, now, you know, there are a lot of jobs that are not being filled. People are realizing, Hey, you know, we were in this rat race for however long we were. 
And then we had this, we had to stop and cut it off. And then they're like, well, this is, you know, I can kind of breathe a little bit too. I don't have to continue to go back to work. So I think there's some women that actually, you know, um, enjoy that kind of, that kind of not having to have to, to, to work all the time and to be, you know, to be both, be a, a mother, wife, as well as a career woman. Um, but it does put a lot of pressure on, on the woman. Um, I think now, you know, we're, we're moving in a good direction. I think there's also men that are, I mean, I know several, several husbands that are stay-at-home dads, you know, so even that having that, there can be two sides of it, right? So I think, um, I think both sides are, are, I don't think there's like, they're not taboo. It's not taboo anymore. It's just a matter of well, what is it that, that you want to do and you, you can make the choices or make decisions based on your interests and your passion and what you want to do or your situation and whether it's going to back to work or whether it's staying at home with the kids. So I don't know if that really answered your question too much, but. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Okay. And Roe versus Wade is 50 years old now. Do you think we should uphold or overturn this? And if overturned, what, what would be the impact on women? Okay. So where versus way, that's the freedom, the right to choose, right? Mm-hmm. Choose yeah. With, okay. Yes, you get an abortion or not. Yeah. 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 So um, I, I, I'm pro-choice. I believe it's a woman's right to, to, to make the decision what she wants to do with her body. Um, me personally, I would never get an abortion just because, you know, I think um, God created you know, I would never intentionally get an abortion just because I think that there's, it's, there's some, there's God breathed in every, every person. Um, but I don't think it should be overturned. I think women should have that right to choose whether or not they want to get an abortion. And if it is overturned, which I know there's, I think in Texas, they, they passed some kind of law. I think in Florida, DeSantis and his cronies passed some kind of law with, a, with a, trying to make abortion illegal. Um, I think it's going to be pretty pretty bad if, if they I think it's I think it's going to create a lot of just a lot of protests I mean a lot of I'd probably be out there protesting too because I think it's a woman's right to choose um but yeah I think it's going to it's going to cause a lot of division if it were to be overturned and thinking about it, we've come so far like on the Supreme like with the Supreme Court and the decisions we've made we've come so far thinking back to like Ruth Bader Ginsburg if we were to overturn that it's like we're, we're reverting back to where we were you know so yeah, we gotta we gotta stand up for for, for that for sure. And yeah, my and, mm-hmm. and kind of going on off of that, um, like you mentioned earlier, like Texas passed a law to like illegalize abortions over six weeks, and Florida's passing a law as well to legalize abortions over fifteen weeks. Um, so what do you think about this? Um, since there are dozens of states trying to pass similar laws, um, and what do you think about the movement overall? And if you disagree with these laws, what do you think people can do to change that? Yeah, I think, um, so like I mentioned, I think it's a woman's right to choose. Um, And I think at some point, though, I mean, I don't know, 15 weeks is like like four months, four and a half months, like right in the middle of the pregnancy. So at that point, I mean, your baby's pretty much formed. um, But I still think there should be some exceptions to to abortions. I don't think it should, I mean, if the baby is going to be born stillborn, for example, if he has some kind of condition. I mean, I think a woman should still have the right to choose. So I'm definitely against those laws. Um, and I do, I, I've heard about some of the talk about other states trying to pass similar laws. I think it's just kind of this whole move, movement of, you know, conservatism 
and we're just, our country's becoming more divided. And it's kind of scary in a way, because like, where is it going to, are we going to go, are we headed towards another civil war? Um, but it's just, there, there's strong on one, on, on either end of the stick, right? Um, I think that women, we, we need to protest. We need to, we need, we need to make our voices heard. We don't need to quit. We need to keep fighting um, to make sure that, you know, especially the laws that were passed, like Roe versus Wade, that they could, there's a reason why they were passed, you know, we should, we should fight for our rights and fight and let our voices be heard. Um, and so the Me Too movement, I think, was definitely a, a good start. I think we need to reignite that and keep it like in the forefront so that people know we're serious. We're not, I mean, we should be treated equally. If a man has a right to choose, women have a right to choose too. Yeah, and over the last few decades, the nation has made considerable progress in addressing the violence and abuse many women experience at the hands of partners, acquaintances, and strangers. Despite this progress, threats to women's safety continue to profoundly affect their economic security, health, civic engagement, and overall well-being. Could you please comment your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, so um, for me, I think that um, need more education. You know, I think women, especially like younger women, they need to be made aware of certain things that you just want to, you just want to watch out for yourself. Um, and you can do that through education. We have made a lot of progress, but at the same time, our society has just gotten more hate to use this word, but more perverse in some ways. And so we need to know, like we need to be aware and recognize these signs. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about doing, so I noticed that when I had a couple of summer camps and I had the, and I was thinking specifically of this middle school group, when I had my middle school students together, like male and female students, it was a bad idea. Because <laughs> at that age group, there's so many hormones going on. But I think just in terms of the learning, I think it's better to separate females and males at that age group. And so this is like the year before COVID, I'm like, okay, next time I'm gonna offer this, I'm gonna do just for females. And then what I'm gonna do is, you know, give them not only just um, a, an environment where it's just females, they can really thrive and understand and, and gain knowledge, but give them also uh, tools, strategies they can use just to, just to defend themselves and kind of empower themselves. And so I talked to this lady who, um, who teaches jujitsu karate um, and I was going to have a self-defense course for them. Um, also, I have another, um, I know someone else, another professional who does like, like well care. So she teaches girls how to take care of themselves um, once they turn teenagers. And once they really, that whole, when you talk about like your period and your menstruation, when that starts, that's getting them to think about, okay, now I'm, I'm growing into a woman now. So you have to start taking care of yourself. And so I think education is important teaching, teach starting early, teaching girls and females, you know, how to take care of themselves, how to defend themselves. Um, and then, you know, you think about those situations during the pandemic, especially when domestic violence and domestic abuse was like rampant. And you have women that were in situations that they couldn't, cry, they couldn't get help, you know, and so that the whole um, death rate among women who died by domestic violence in increased during that time, which is crazy to me. It's really sad. The things you don't really think about, you know, what other people are, what other women are going through. Um, and so how can we help them? How can we, so I know there was a, there was a big push to really just talk about it and say, hey, this is really happening. Um, and so we need to help these women. So I think ed education, I think is a huge part of it. Yeah, and globally for every 10 victims of human trafficking detected, about five were adult women and two were girls. Most of the detected victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation around 92% were females. Um, what can we as ordinary people do to alleviate this issue? 
A great question. So see, for me, I never even thought about human trafficking. To be honest with you, I don't think I'd even know how to recognize um, if a person were in that situation or if they needed, you know, that kind of help. So again, I think education is really important. I mean, as as ordinary people, let's go through training. Let's you know teach me how to recognize if a person or a child or a student or you know another woman is is in that kind of, of situation. What are the signs? What are how do I how do I how can I help? Um, and and like I said, education is is a huge part of that. I know being uh, having summer camps. One of the things we have to do is go through. Um, training from the Department of Children and Families. And so they go through situations and cases and role, role playing where what if you have a child who comes, you know, to, to camp one day with bruises all over their body, you know, that's, that's a huge issue. And it's up to us. I mean, we're there in our care and we're like the, their eyes for them, their voice. So we have to report things that we see. And same thing true for human trafficking. I mean, how do we recognize that? How do we how, you know, I wouldn't even know, to be honest with you. So I have to do more research on how to recognize human trafficking, what I can do as an ordinary person to really help women who are in this situation. And I think it's, you know, a lot of times we think, um, like when I think human traffic, trafficking, I think of like the, the vans and like they're full of people and they're coming across the border and, you know, women are kind of, you know, they're kind of being handed out, that kind of thing. But it's more than that. I mean, they're women that are being, they have pimps and they have, you know, just, it's a whole underground thing that I'm just not used to and I'm not aware of. So I think education is really gonna be important. And I think more is being done. I know there was, um, there was my, my kids are like artists. And so there was like an art competition locally at Neon County that um, for, for like, uh, like high school kids, middle school and high school kids about you know human trafficking. And they had to draw some kind of artwork on um, their perception of human trafficking. and and what they thought it was and what it, what, how it made them, made them feel. And so we were talking about it with, I was talking about it with my kids and like, you know, we were talking about human trafficking and what, what do they know about it? They know way more than I do, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and the, the things like that to make, make, make us more aware of that this is real and it's actually going on. Um, because a lot of people tend to live in their own little bubble and their own little world. Um, and so, but there's a whole nother, you know, world out there that we were a part of. So. Yeah. And do you think the women's movement is stronger or weaker today than, than in the 1970s? What do you think um, things would change for the, if things change for the better or worse based on your own personal experience? It's a great question. Yeah, I definitely think that women are progressing. We're moving we're in the right direction. Um, I mean, I think back in the 70s, we did like our RBG with Greta Ginsburg. She was really big on women's rights and, and um, making sure you know, equal rights for, for women. So I think that the um, fact that we had the Me Too movement and even the fact that we had the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, just the fact that we, those movements are, it's, the issues are still coming up means that it, we haven't eradicated anything. And we're just really, I don't think we really dealt with our past as a nation, as a country. And so these are coming back to the surface until we can actually deal with it and come up with real solutions and, um, and um, be able to you know, be able to create a society where we all feel like we, we, we have a place, we have a voice and we're not victimized and we're not marginalized. Um, until we can get to that point, these issues are still gonna come up. And so I think for women, I think we still have to just kind of, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's better today because like I said, um, in my profession, I'm able to have, have a child and not feel like, you know, well, you, you're gonna lose your job because you, you know, you have, have a child. I feel like, if I negotiate, you know, 
stronger and harder, then I get the pay that I that I want. Um, I feel like that we're making progress in the right direction, but I think we still need to be out in the forefront. We still need to have people that are speaking, you know, for us and that are that are in the, in the Supreme Courts and that are lawyers and that are you know doctors and they're in the places where our voices need to be heard. They're in technology education because um, if we as soon as we you know as soon as we're not in those situations those areas the people that are going to be making decisions there are going to be the men and so they're going to make decisions for themselves um and so i think we definitely have to continue to to rise up and fight for ourselves and fight for our rights yeah and what do you think of school dress codes according to the american civil liberties union dress codes are legal if they do not treat boys and girls differently for students to conform to sex stereotypes or censor particular viewpoints what are your comments on this so this one was an interesting one. Um, you know, I think dress of my daughter wears a uniform to school. My son is, goes to a public, public school. So I love uniforms because there's no, it's like everyone has to wear the same thing and, and it can be enforced. Whereas in a public school setting, it's hard to, well, they should enforce it. They have dress, dress codes and they really should enforce it, but it's not getting enforced. And so if it's not gonna get enforced, then I mean, it, it shouldn't be made um, illegal, but there are, it's. It, it's it's really weird because my it's hard to tell. I mean, there's there, I think kids today are a little confused maybe because some of them it's like you have males, you have females, you have transgender, you have LGBTQ, you know, plus communities. I don't know. It's it's if I were I, I was thinking if I were a student today, I think I'd be very confused. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know you know, what's right and what's wrong. What should I say? What shouldn't I say? What should I wear? What should I not wear? Um, and so I think that dress codes are good. They just need to be enforced. And um, I think it's different, you know, in all honesty for men, for boys, as opposed to girls. But then in some ways, girls, you know, you can wear things that you can wear. I think the halter top is the thing now. My daughter, we, we went shopping today and she's getting all these halter top clothes. And I'm like, no, you cannot get that. <laughs> But I think it's just a style. Um, but you have to be really careful. It kind of goes back to that question you said before about, you know, we have to really educate women because the we've we've progressed and we've come a long way, but there are still these threats and we have to be aware. Is what we're doing provoking any of this? You know, are we making it worse or making it better for ourselves? And so if you have girls that are, you know, half dressing, I, I brought my son off at school and these high school kids are just like, what are you wearing? You're wearing that to school? I mean, they're ripped ripped jeans and jeans you can see their underwear and you know you can see half of their bra and I mean it's just it's like you know and then I know the problem is I know that they're not it's not they're not going to school and saying hey you know you need to go back home and change because you can't wear that here they're just letting them wear it you know and that's such a distraction for really anyone but but they just they they themselves need to be made aware of that and to own it and say hey you know I shouldn't shouldn't be wearing this or if you're gonna wear it you know um own it, own the consequences. If you're going to make your bed, you, we got to lay in it, right? So I tell my kids, you gotta, hey, you made it, you got to lay in it. So you got to deal with the consequences. So be very careful about what you choose to do, what you choose to say. I don't know. Okay. I think I got off topic there. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, you're perfect. Good. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so could you also talk about gender roles in literature and how are women defining classics? Um, like, what is the new trend in literature about the leading female characters? Good question. I feel like I don't have a lot of expertise on this one <laughs> because I do more like technical writing. Um, and so 
for me, I'm like more of a STEM based person. So when I write, it's very much, um, you know, I have to have like the, the one intro paragraph and the three, you know, supporting paragraphs and all that kind of thing. So mine's very structured. Um, but then thinking about like the, how women were defined before and how, you know, women are defined now, I can kind of talk about it from the perspective of really my sister, because she's, she's like a writer um, and she's a professor of speech communications. And she said that really some of the things, I mean, back then you had like women have these roles. We talked about the 50s, Leave to Beaver and all that good stuff. And, you know, women were expected to be in the kitchen and cook and clean barefoot and pregnant. And that was kind of like the concept. Now it's like women are, you know, they can be you know, straight, they can be, they can be still play the traditional role, but they can be these career oriented women. They are, you know, um, cougars, they're like vicious, they're, they're back. I mean, it's just, it's all out in the open now. And, and when you look at like some of the literature that's, that women are, are um, producing, I mean, it's independent woman, it's feminism. It's like, hey, you know, this is, I am woman, hear me roar kind of thing. Um, and that's totally different than what it was, you know, back at, we just went to watch Cyrano, Serrano, last night in the movies and you know that whole genre is very different than, than what it is now um which it's it is I mean in some ways it's empowering right because women you feel like you're independent you can do what you want you can say what you want um and so at the same time you have to know within yourself how do you want to be defined how do you want to be looked at and how do you want people how do you want to portray yourself in your own identity like what's your identity as a woman as as a female as as you know gender, non-gender, non-binary, whatever you, whatever you um, relate to, you know, you own it. You have to, you have to define that for yourself, for, um, you know, and you have to, I don't know, you have to just be open to, to, to be who you are. That makes yeah. Sense. yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, someone on the internet mocked the NATO country saying that their secretary of defense were all females while Russia's were primarily male. And what is your response to those people and how does that reflect on women's role in modern society? Yeah, so obviously we have a lot, we have a long way to go. <laughs> we are, we, we, we've progressed, but we haven't progressed enough. So just the fact that, you know, someone feels like, okay, well, yeah, you're all female, um, you know, Secretary of Defense, that's an awesome thing, you know, to know that women, we, we can take on those roles, we can do, we're every bit as powerful and strong as a man, you know? And so the fact that we can defend our country as, as, um, as a secretary, secretary of defense is to me powerful and it's empowering and it's inspiring and motivating. And the fact that we have people that still mock that and still think, hey, you know, women can't, is not as strong as a man. Women can't, women can't be in that role or play that role um, just means that, hey, we're still thought of, especially by men as the weaker sex. Um, and I don't think I don't think that's true at all. So I just think we still have a long way to go, and we still need to make our voices heard and fight. Okay. Um. What is your definition of a feminist? Mm, good question. Um. So to me, a feminist is a person. It could be a male or female who just who supports women's rights, who fights for women, um, who wants who supports women's equal rights. I should say. Um, and women representation. So it's 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 someone who who lobbies and who support not just supports but really lobbies for women's rights and who's out in the forefront saying, hey, who's like the voice of women, so to speak. Um, so someone like that, and I think it could be a man or a woman, to be honest with you. Yeah, and 
Um, it kind of feels like there is a war on women trying to turn back many gains that women have won like throughout the years. So how do you think we can combat this war? Yeah, good question. Um, so things like the Me Too movement, I think that's really important. Um, I think that, and, and even now you don't hear about it as much. So just having, having um, like our feminists, right? Fight, fighting for us, keeping our or making our voices heard and not have not letting it die, but continuing to put our push forward and say, "Hey, we're we we're going to fight and we're going to continue to fight until um, until women have equal rights, until we can we're looked at as equal to a man, no less. We're getting paid as much, you know, and if not more, depending on what position we're in. Um, so yeah, I think we just there it does kind of feel like there's there is pushback and there's like we're trying to revert back, but in some ways I'm like gosh, are we headed to, I think there's just this division in this whole country where you have like extreme right and you have the extreme left and populations are getting bigger and bigger. And like, the, there's no, there's heart, there's the middle ground. I don't think it's there. It's, it's like disappearing. <laughs> so does that mean we're leading to us? We're, we're headed towards a civil war? I don't know. Um, but we, regardless, as women, we still have to fight. And I think that not everybody, not everybody was purposed to be a feminist, not everybody's purpose to, you know, to be on the Supreme Court, right? Not everybody's purpose to be um, a judge or a lawyer or someone who, who's in the position to um, the voice of a woman. And so I think that people are have strengths in different areas, but wherever you are, you know, you make an impact where you are and you do what you can do um, in support of women. So um, that's, that's my feeling. I think we just continue to, to make our voices heard. Yeah, and lastly, what would you like to see happen when it comes to gender equality in the next few years? A great question. So yeah, we definitely um, equal pay. I would love to have as much as if a man. If a man were doing my job, I wanted to see how much he would get paid, and I wanted to get paid that much, you know, because um, I know I do a lot. Um, but I definitely, I mean, we have a female vice president, so I would love to see a, a woman president in the next few years. And I don't think it's out of the out of you know reach for us to to get there. Um, and then I love to see just representation, uh, more women. I love to see more women in, in, in my department, in my field. So I think there was a st statistic that I read where just across like in the entire, in the entire country, there's only like 200, not even 200, but 200, around 200 black female PhDs in higher education um, ever, like in the whole country. Right, and you think about how many universities there are, how many engineering programs there are. That's just not a lot, um, and so I want more or less. You know, I want to see more or less. Um, so, hopefully, we'll see. I'm gonna keep pushing forward towards it. Yeah. Well, that was all my questions, but thank you so much for.